Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 224 of the Mom Hour. I'm Sarah Powers, here as always with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hey, Sarah. I'm so jealous how you just 224 just rolled off your tongue. Just rolled off the tongue. I mean, I can just take over that job from now on. (laughs) We're pretty good at dividing and conquering around here. (laughs) Um, Guys, this is a continuation of last week's episode where we took your listener questions and gave our possibly helpful answers, question mark? Who knows? I think they were pretty helpful. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say we were great. Okay. We always enjoy these listener (laughs) questions episodes, and we really, really, really love getting your questions, Um, in particular the ones where you record your voice and send them in. I think because you guys listen to our voices all the dang time, and we don't ever get to hear yours. Um, So if you're not clear how to do that. We'll link it up in the show notes. And and we always do these about every three months. We do it a couple of times. So if we haven't gotten to your question or you, you'd still like to send one in, we're always taking new ones. Um, so Megan, we have four more great listener questions to take today. But before we get there, we're going to take a quick break. We're welcoming back paintyourlife.com today as a sponsor. And I have to say that when I heard this company takes one of your photos and commissions a professional artist to then create a painting from it, I thought, hey, that's such a great gift idea. But B, that's obviously super expensive because original artwork can be so pricey. But it turns out paintyourlife.com pieces are very affordable and wait till you guys hear the discount we're giving you. Also, the quality is amazing. So if you're looking for a meaningful gift, you've got to check it out. Yeah, so the way this works is you upload a favorite photo to paintyourlife.com and they'll help you commission an original painting based on that photo. It can be a picture of your kids, a beloved pet, or maybe a special place. And what you'll get is an actual painting done by hand by a world-class artist. You get to choose your style of painting, like they have oil or acrylic, and you also choose the artist whose work you most admire and work with them throughout the process until every detail is perfect. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded. I got a landscape of the boys playing at the beach last summer. And another thing I thought was really cool is that the website made it really easy for me to figure out which medium was best for my photo. So a lot of times photos of Lake Michigan get a little washed out because it's basically like blue sky on blue water on beige sand. So I chose acrylic because the colors are more saturated in acrylic paintings. And I love it. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. And right now, as a limited time offer, you're going to get 30% off your painting. That's right, 30% off and free shipping. So to get the special offer, text the word MOM to 797979. That's MOM to 797979. Again, you're going to text MOM to 797979. Um, just keep in mind that message and data rates may apply. It's the new year, you guys. Okay, not the January kind, the new school year kind. And I am full of the promise of new routines right now, Megan. It is time. It's time. (laughs) It's over overdue time. (laughs) Overdue. So while I like to keep our after-school schedule really light, typically, I don't always get my way. And this fall, for a number of reasons, we have quite a bit going on. There's just no possible way I can start dinner at 4 or 5 o'clock most weeknights. So I am using Prep Dish to solve my evening stress and make sure we're eating really healthy meals as a family. With Prep Dish, you do your chopping and prepping on the weekend or whenever you have a few hours using step-by-step instructions that combine the work logically. Like, why chop an onion on three different nights of the week when you can do it all at once on a slow Sunday? afternoon. This is genius. Yeah. And Allison, the founder of Prep Dish, has these meal plans down to a science. 
You can choose from gluten-free, dairy-free, paleo, and keto options. And they even have super fast meal plans for those extra busy weeks, which we all have. Mm -hmm. You print your shopping list, all organized by section of the store. And then the prep instructions are all laid out really clearly. So after you've done your prep day, the meals come together in about 20 minutes on whatever night you choose to serve them. I sometimes have these delusional fantasies that I can whip up healthy dinners on a random Tuesday, but the truth is I just can't do it that way. So prepping ahead saves me the stress and lets me keep whole healthy ingredients as a priority for my family. I am back on the prep dish wagon and I think you guys should join me. You're going to get two weeks of meal plans free when you sign up at prepdish.com slash the mom hour. Again, you can try out healthy prep ahead recipes with easy to follow shopping lists and all the instructions for free for two weeks at prepdish.com slash the mom hour. Okay, so our first question, this is kind of fun because I feel like it's actually continuing a dialogue from an episode a couple weeks ago. If you guys listened, we talked about home management systems. And one of the things we talked about that was working in my house was giving away, donating used items. And as part of that conversation, Megan, you and I both sort of giggled about going around the house, scooping up toys that haven't been played with in a while that we know the kids aren't going to miss, putting them in a black garbage bag and sending them off with the donation people. And you made a comment, something to the effect of, you know, and they never notice. The kids never notice. And here's what's funny. In that moment, we were on the clock. We were recording. We have an outline. And I just kind of like laughed and said, yep, you're right. And one of our listeners in our Facebook group, Amber, posted this comment. And she said, you know, Megan said her kids never notice, but my kid knows notices. And just the other day, he was looking for a drum that I'd given away two years ago and he remembered it. And so I know, Megan, you have thoughts on this, but but what we're talking about is when, when kids do have a hard time parting with their stuff or when they do ask you like, Hey, where'd that thing go that I never played with, but now all of a sudden I remember. Um, And so I just want to say to Amber that I admitted it in the Facebook group that I actually do have kids who have done this too. And we just didn't have time to cover it in that episode. So we're taking this, we're continuing this discussion, but, um, She's even said that her, she thinks her son might be a little bit of a hoarder. And Megan, I feel like you have some experience with this. I do. Okay. So first of all, um, it is, I never like to come off as glib about stuff like that. So I'm glad that Amber brought it up because I want to circle back to that. Um, One of the things that, that Amber says, this is just an example that she gives is that she gave the toddler drum set away, which by the way, we all know we can't hang on to everything forever because our kid might eventually miss it. So I don't think that Amber is saying like, you know, it, was it wrong of me to give it away? But I just, in case you're having any guilt about the fact that you gave it away, like we know that that has to happen sometimes. Um, but then she said that she kind of matter of factly said, oh, sh- I gave it to my cousin for her baby. And that is when her little boy melted down. And then she also says that later on that he caused that getting rid of things creates this anxiety reaction in her son. Um, And it doesn't really matter when she tries to talk to him about paying it forward or giving it to people who could use it. It doesn't matter. It's anxiety. He has a really hard time with it. So one of the things that jumped out at me about that was that I think sometimes kids with like anxiety or these collecting tendencies need time to adjust to the the fact that the thing is, isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what might've felt to you like very matter of fact in a positive way, like, oh, you know, I gave that to my cousin. She needed it and you don't, you know, may have come off like a little too abrupt like shocking. for your, yeah. like shocking, you know, and this might sound like awful advice, but in situations where I've, cause I definitely have a couple of kids with who've had anxiety and one in particular who's had a lot of anxiety around stuff. And 
the way I might have handled that was to kind of hem and haw, like, huh, good question. Gosh, I haven't seen it in a while. I'll keep looking. Now, it could be seen as a lie because I do remember when I saw it. Well, it's true that I haven't seen it in a while. Mm -hmm. I won't actually keep looking. I have found that sometimes that's enough to kind of get over the hump of like, I want this thing right now, but they're probably not really going to want it again in a month Mm -hmm. or in a week, especially if it's been gone for that long. So just a thought that maybe what your son was reacting to right then was just this like, what do you mean you get, what what do you mean you gave it away? Like that wasn't yours to give away. Um, So Clara does definitely have like hoarding tech uh, tendencies with us. It really didn't play out with toys, which is why I think with, with me, I was able to get away with the whole tossing toys behind her back for her. It was stuff like scraps of paper (laughs) and drawings and little notebooks that she would write in. And then I would have a million little notebooks and she would never want to get rid of anything. Um, it really set in like around three, four, five, when she was starting to do a lot of crafting and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she would say that it felt like throwing away a memory. And so like, of course that broke my heart, but we couldn't have piles and piles and piles of little scraps of paper. So I, like, I feel like this was a conversation we had to have like every day. We would say things like, okay, so, you know, I would have her clean her little crafting area and say, okay, well, if you really feel like you want to hold on to that, can you make three piles? Like the things that you know that you can get rid of, the things that you think you might be able to get rid of later and the things that you know you'll never be able to get rid of. And then at least we have three piles. Now, the never going to get rid of later was the biggest pile Mm -hmm. or ever is the Mm -hmm. biggest pile. Like the maybe pile was moderate and that I can get rid of this thing right now. But you were still giving her like a framework for making (laughs) those decisions, even if she was like at the baby step level. Right. Yes. And eventually like some things would make, like when her desk got so messy, she couldn't use it. I would say, I think some more things need to move out of this pile, this middle pile, because now you don't have any room to do your work or like to draw or craft. And so she'd say, okay. And then she'd kind of go back and move a few things. Um, She's 10 now and she talks kind of like, I don't know, like nostalgically and sort of like affectionately about herself as like when she was a little baby hoarder. And she's actually said that, like, I know um, sometimes it's hard for me not to hoard things and I'm, I'm working on it. I love the way Clara talks about Uh herself, but, but she has become much more knowledgeable about, or self-aware, I guess is the right word. And also understands that there will always be more scraps of paper. There will always be more toys. But when she was two or three, she couldn't understand that. And it yeah. took her a long, even when she was four, five, six, seven. I, I think probably the height of that kind of anxiety for her was probably like six and seven. I, like and second, I first think, and second grade. I think that's actually about the age of Amber's son, if I remember right. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's not right. super little. I think he's like seven. Um, okay. So yeah, I love everything that you just said. And first of all, I have had major, like I have just been caught in the act of having given stuff away that my kids are. I've had all three kids in tears yelling at me that I gave away. And keep in mind, I'm not going around collecting their precious objects. I'm collecting, right. in particular, there were a couple of Pokemon stuffed um, stuffed Pokemon, but from like a carnival, you know, where they're stuffed with like cardboard. <laughs> they're they're not soft. They're like <laughs> yeah. disposable stuffed animals. And they were huge. And um, we didn't have anywhere to store them. And they they stopped playing with them. And I, I um, was hung out to dry for that one. But here's what I want to say, because I think Amber, one of her concerns about should I sneak it out or should I have him face the music and do it himself? And by sneaking it out, am I sort of almost enabling these hoarding tendencies because now he's so worried that his stuff is going to disappear behind yeah. his back that he starts hoarding? I think those are really good questions to ask. I don't think it has to be either or. Like I think yeah. about like 
anything that I want my kids to um, mature and grow about, it's like, it's a little bit of a give and take on some days, like we're all eating broccoli and that's for dinner. And if you don't like it, you can go to bed hungry. And there are some days where I just might sneak some hot dogs on the menu because I don't want to deal with the fight that night. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're navigating this in ebbs and flows. And so while I probably wouldn't advocate always sneaking everything out and never having him like you, like you did with Clara. That was really cool. How like she had a process to go through at the same time. I don't think there's anything wrong with sometimes doing a purge, making an executive decision as the household manager, and then later helping him with those feelings. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. I've seen it as, you know, I did get rid of that. Nobody had played with it in six months and we were making room in our house for new things. I say that to my kids a lot. You guys are really fortunate, like new toys and new things to do come into our house all the time. We've got three birthdays. We've got Christmases. And there isn't enough space. So sometimes I do make those decisions and then I can help the kid deal with the feelings that come up about that. Um, But I probably wouldn't do one of those approaches all of the time. Does that make sense? Like I'm not going to walk my kid through like a saying goodbye to this thing. Are you ready to part with it for every object that I donate? I'm just not, but I, but I will do it sometimes. Um, a couple other things I have done (laughs) with larger objects that they were not quite ready to part with. I have actually paid my kids a few dollars for Mm. the, it's almost like I was buying the used item off of them and then I gave Mm. it away and I've only done it twice and I wouldn't do it for everything. Just like I don't bribe for everything. (laughs) I save the bribes for when I really need them. But the reason it worked is these were, they were kids size armchairs, like the plush kind of armchairs. And they're big. They're big. They take up a lot of space. (laughs) Their little little booties didn't fit in them anymore. And they were up on the shelf in the garage, but they had sentimental value for the kids. And I said, you know, they have sentimental value for me too. But what I think about is all the pictures we have of you guys sitting in those and all the movie nights where you dragged them out. And I, and I said, if it's hard for you, I like to think about what, what could fill that space. Is there, is there a new game or is there like something that we could use that space for? Cause our family's growing and how's five bucks to sweeten the deal. And I have right. done that. I've done it like maybe two or three times and it's just helped them see that everything is a choice, right? I'm making a choice about how I use this space and what, what are the ramifications of holding on to this stuff? And I will say that ages eight and nine and up have gotten way easier. So Amber might be right at the, like things might be about to be easier. Um, but that I still think that as the mom, you kind of have some say in it. You can help him with the feelings, but you can't right. let him keep everything. You can't forever. hang on to the yeah. toy drum forever. Like you just can't do it. Um, yeah, I agree. I like everything you said there. And I think that for me, like looking back, I think when it was starting to get the hardest for Clara was honestly when she had left, she she wasn't playing with traditional toys quite as much. Like there wasn't the influx. Like when kids are really little, there's just new toys all the time because their developmental stages are changing and they're getting new stuff and it's like stuff, stuff, stuff is coming at them. And then that started to slow down. Her interest became more tailored, more focused in certain kinds of toys. And I don't, I do remember like a year and a half to two year period where she kind of, she had never been a huge, she had never been hugely into dolls, but she still had dolls. Mm -hmm. And they, they started ending up like in her closet and then just kind of staying there. And I was tempted to go in and just do a purge, but I thought, you know what? I'm just going to leave them in her closet because right now she's got some weirdness going on around getting rid of things and losing things. And I want to say there was like a two year period where I didn't take anything out of her closet. Like it was just all her toys like gravitated into the closet. Most never came back out. She stopped going and digging them out to play with them. 
her her play things became things like Littlest Pet Shop and like little, mm-hmm. you know, objects that she would do crafts with. She would just draw all over her Littlest Pet Shop and stuff like that. And so the toys just kind of languished. And then we moved when she was, let's see, just just about to turn nine. We moved, um, we moved and we had to go through those closets, which had now been like just untouched. They mm-hmm. were like archaeological digs. <laughs> and it was actually really fun at that age because we kind of went through everything. And I, I was expecting a lot more pushback. Um, and actually what happened is after a while, she kind of got bored and said, mom, you can finish this up and like wandered away. And I was yeah. like, well, okay. So I know what I'm going to do. But I think that for her, like that, like not dealing with it at all for a little while, gave her a breather. Like, cause yeah. at any point she could have gone back in and gotten stuff out. Um, and she just didn't. And I think by the time we finally unearthed it all, she just realized she wasn't going to. And I think the reason that worked is cause it was during a time of her life when there wasn't a lot of other stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the room wasn't getting overrun. It wasn't yep. like stuff falling out of the closet. It was just these two huge toy bins in her closet that stayed full and exactly the same for, you know, probably from when she was seven till she was nine. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Not that that's a life strategy for people who, if that would drive you crazy, it, right. I just didn't look in there. No, I think that's very much the the phase. I think I, I want to be clear that going around and sneaking things into black plastic bags was first of all kind of a throwaway comment but second of all something I did much more often when I knew a hundred percent that kids were not going to notice or if they noticed that I was at a very defensible position on it the things yeah. like the parting with like um the calico critters that they really did play with for a long time or those armchairs those were they required a conversation and they, like you said sometimes they require waiting a year Reed has some stuff in his closet right now that he is never going to play with again and I have floated the idea and I've said you know what it's not taking up space it's not getting in the way right now so we'll just wait till you're ready and he will be someday. Yeah. Yep. All right. Whew. All right. That was a big move one. on. Okay. <laughs> um, I can read this one. Sure. Okay. So this question comes from Megan, but she spells it differently than me. It's M-E-H-M-E-G-H-A-N-N. I don't think I've ever seen it with two N's. So welcome to the not typically spelled Megan Club, Megan. <laughs> um, I am a mom of 10-year-old boy-girl twins and a seven-year-old little guy. One topic I'd love to hear more about is why kids come home from school and melt down and how to handle the stressful part of the day. This also happens often in our family when kids come home and rejoin the family after a visit with grandparents. My understanding is the kids hold it together all day at school by following the rules, listening, keeping hands to themselves, and then they come home to a safe place where parents will love them through it. They let go. So Sarah, do you want to yeah, jump on this? I have I, a feeling you'll have a lot of good things to I, say. I picked this one. Actually, Megan sent this in quite a while ago and it was just one that we didn't get to. And I found it today and I was like, well, this is back. We are in back to school central this time of year. Right. And so while it's so familiar to you and me to hear what she's saying. And in fact, this is one of those questions where she's kind of answered her own question, which is, you know, they, they come home and they let loose because they can at home. But for some of you out there, this might be new territory in particular, the new kinders. So I thought it would be good to talk about. Um, I mean, I do think the reason it happens is because the expectations in a traditional school environment are a lot on all kids, in particularly wiggly kids um, or kids who, you know, have trouble sitting still or keeping their hands to themselves. And more and more is expected of kids earlier and earlier nowadays. Mm -hmm. So, um, but 
even older kids in the back to school season, especially it's a, it's a think about if you changed, like Megan, you were a freelancer. And then all of a sudden you went to work in an office every day, your entire system, your brain, your emotional life, like everything has to get used to that pretty radical shift in, in schedule and expectations. And so I think sometimes we downplay the start of school or the transition to a new year for even for older kids, it's just, it's not a bad thing. It's just a big change. And so I do think they come home and sometimes act like not themselves or not how you would prefer that they act. So gosh, I guess, um, knowing what to expect and knowing that it's normal is a huge piece of it for me. Um, I would say I am stricter about certain things and more relaxed about certain things during during the after school hour, when we did our episode a couple weeks ago, I talked about how I'm really strict about the after school, put away your backpack routine, because I know if I, it's not a time to be flexible. Like it's a time when they need to know what to expect. But then I think I'm a little more lenient about things like, you know, like saying please for their snack and like being a little grumpy as they sit there. And like, I think I'm a little more empathetic about some of the moods that come home short of, you know, abusing your family members, which you cannot do. So I don't know. I think it's just, yes, it's normal is my, is my big one here. How about you? Yeah. So I was nodding through all of that. I think the note that I made is it's okay to have feelings. It's not okay to use those feelings on someone else. And we all know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay. You can feel whatever you want to feel. It's not okay to hurt somebody, yell in my face, like those kinds of things. And that's kind of where I always draw the line. Um, I love the after school routines. Um, One thing that I've tried to pay attention to is A, do they need like immediate downtime once that routine is done? Is it like, can we stop and and put a pin in -hmm. our afternoon and everyone can retreat to their corners or snuggle quietly Mm -hmm. or whatever it is that they maybe need, like no expectations. They've had so many expectations on them Mm -hmm. throughout the day that sometimes it's nice for them to just be able to do whatever they want. And that can be really hard to pull off Mm -hmm. the way kids' lives are set up these days. Um, But that's always been very helpful for us is just to have some quiet time. And I feel like I say this a lot for a variety of different scenarios and reasons, but like sometimes the thing you did last year isn't going to work this year mm. for some reason, or sometimes the, and I'm not talking about things like come in, hang up your backpack, like those after school routines, but sometimes literally the time you serve dinner needs to be moved back or up by mm-hmm. a half hour. Sometimes you need to change the way you feel about snacking. Like maybe you haven't been keen on the kids having an after school snack right away because you do dinner early. So just because something worked, I guess in the past or you in all your best intended well-laid plans you're going to serve dinner at x time of night or a snack is going to be at this time or homework is going to happen at that time like it might just not play out that way. So I if we've talked about this before like mm-hmm. those first few weeks just being almost like the newborn period mm-hmm. or just paying attention to what's happening and that's where I love to have things I love to plan. I mean I know that this is usually you're the planner, mm-hmm. but I like to have all these fantasy plans that I make mm-hmm. and weeks in advance, I will have how I think my evenings are going to run all Mm -hmm. written out, but I kind of know I'm writing it down just to break it. Like Mm -hmm. I know that I'm writing, I'm making a rule and I'm going to find a weak link in someplace in that outline or that schedule. There's a weak link that I have not yet discovered. Mm -hmm. And it might be different than last year because my kids are all different ages or maybe something else in the circumstances have changed or they're getting home a little later or they're leaving a little earlier, whatever it is, something's different. Um, And I think that that sometimes is just worth looking at the way that you do things may need to shift. And sometimes it's a small shift. Yeah. can make a big difference. Yeah. I really like that. I have three concrete things to add and they're seemingly unrelated. One is do not 
underestimate the power of hydration when kids are, Mm -hmm. they're often hungry after school, but if you live in a place where the start of school is hot, um, thirsty kids are angry kids. And that goes all the way back down to toddlers. I think it was so, we were so conditioned in Arizona to really understand hydration, but um, kids often will not recognize when they're thirsty. And as we all know, like after you're, when you're dehydrated, it's like kind of too late. Like you don't, if you're thirsty, you're already kind of behind. So if you have grumpy kids after school, make sure they are getting hydrated because they might not have been drinking water all day. Um, Number two, just an observation that my kids assume the most non-traditional poses in the after-school hours. Like I got, I got a video the other day of Violet just upside down, like upside down with her head (laughs) between a couch. Like I just try and remember that they have been so upright and so Mm -hmm. sort of physically, this makes it sound like school is a horrible place, but like, you know, you are told what to do with your body almost a hundred percent of the day. And so just be, be, let that be okay. Like my tween is now the size of an adult. And sometimes I'll look over and she's just like sprawled in kind of the most like unattractive, like awkward position on 10 different pillows. And I want to be like, gosh, can you like sit normal and read your book normally? But I don't say that because I feel like they need physically to just, it's like a coil that needs to they be need to just, take up space. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or like Owen, his, his habit of crawling into like a hidey hole. Yes. Uh, that's always been his thing, burrowing in a blanket, like a little burrito. And I think that's because he's kind of introverted and school is like one raw exposed nerve. Like yes. you're exposed to so many people you have to deal with all day and so much stimulation. He just wants to come home and cocoon himself. So I, I same, love same. that. My little brother used to, my only brother, I made it sound like I have a whole bunch. My brother used to um, like crawl around on the floor, pushing his head into the carpet because it felt good. Like the sensory <laughs> experience. So I'm just picturing all yes. of these really funny things that kids do. Hanging upside down, hanging off a chair backwards, tolerate it. Older to, kids than you would think. Older than two, you think. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So tolerate it to the extent that you can, because it's probably serving some primal need that we don't even understand. And then my third thing has more to do with um, what Megan mentioned about sort of bottling up their emotional experiences during the day and then letting loose when it's safe at home. And I think kids do this differently. Some of them might just pick a fight with their sibling, but some might not say anything and it's going to come out in other ways. And I would say for those kids, just make sure there's some space in the evening routine somewhere where if they do want to talk, like you're doing dishes together or you're hanging out at bedtime, that there's a safe place for those, those school related experiences yeah. to come to light. It's probably not going to be at the counter having a snack. How was your day, honey? Well, great. Right. Uh, you know, this kid hurt my feelings. It's not, it doesn't play out that way. So there needs to be space somewhere. It doesn't have to be after school, but if there can be some, some safe place at some time in the evening, I think that's helpful for older kids. I was just having this mental image, Sarah, of a couple episodes ago, I think it was when you, you talked about, um, tell me more about that, yeah. the five word. And I was just picturing a kid having a screaming tantrum and you saying, tell me more about that. <laughs> tell me more about that. <laughs> so maybe the time to use, tell me more about that is when things are in a calmer, yes. quieter place. Yes. And when they're volunteering information, <laughs> when they're not volunteering information. Yeah. The strategy is oh, different. You're screaming at me. Tell me tell more. Me more. Tell me more about that. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Okay. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then we will come back with a couple more listener questions. So I have been intrigued by natural deodorants for a while. I have always been a little bit skeeved out by the fact that a typical deodorant or antiperspirant has ingredients like aluminum, which may be linked with some serious health issues, and they're just going right into your armpit pores. 
Or if you're like me and you do a really crappy job shaving, there's like open wounds there just <laughs> bathed in aluminum. So it seems like a bad idea. But then I tried a few natural deodorants in the past and they didn't work. And then I smelled and that also seemed like a bad idea. Yeah, this is a challenge for sure. So I was a little bit skeptical before I tried native deodorant, but I became a believer right away. I actually first tried it when I was in the middle of that insane yoga challenge that I did earlier this year. And what I noticed while hanging upside down, dripping sweat in downward facing dog is that my armpits which were like, you know, right alongside my nose, <laughs> smelled delicious. I'm sure my instructor wondered why I kept hanging out in poses where my nose was in my armpit like a little longer than I had to. Well, that's a visual I didn't have until right this minute. Thank you. <laughs> so Native really holds up to a busy active lifestyle. And the best thing is the ingredients are totally clean. No parabens, talc, or aluminum. Only ingredients found in nature like coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. And the scents are awesome. They're made for both men and women, and they're amazing. My favorite is lavender rose, but they're all pretty unisex, and they all smell really good. So there's no risk to try, and Native offers free returns and exchanges in the USA, and we have a great deal for you. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code THEMOMHOUR during checkout. Again, we're going to save you 20% off your order. Just go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code THEMOMHOUR at checkout, and you're going to love how you smell. All right, you guys, I've been very honest on this show about my dog, Xander. I love him, but he is often kind of last in the pecking order with a busy house and three kids. I am a dog person, but I'm not like an obsessed with my dog person. So it's easy for me to forget that pets need some variety in their lives too. And that's why I love our sponsor, BarkBox. BarkBox is a monthly subscription box stuffed with cool toys and delicious all natural treats and shoes. The products are all super high quality. The toys are made from the best materials like stomach safe t-shirt rope and unique squeakers that will keep your your pup entertained for hours. All the treats are grain-free without soy, wheat, or corn, and the meat and treats are sourced in the USA and Canada. It's also a really great value. Each box contains over $40 worth of toys and treats with subscriptions starting at $22. And BarkBox ships right to your door for free, which makes it easy to treat your pup. So one cute thing about Xander is he truly plays with his toys. I've had other dogs in the past who could kind of take or leave their toys, but Xander has his favorites and his own toy box in the kitchen. And some of his favorites are the ones we've gotten from BarkBox. They really do hold up well over time. Yeah, I would say Moxie is a destroyer of toys, <laughs> but it takes her a really long time to get through the BarkBox toys. They are great quality. This is also a great new puppy gift. We got one for my mother-in-law when she got a new puppy and it was such a fun surprise and kind of way to celebrate someone else getting a new puppy, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so BarkBox wants your dog to be really happy and they will happily customize the box to accommodate chewing needs or allergies. And you can update your dog's size as needed so that your BarkBox will grow with your pup. And if your dog doesn't absolutely love something in the box, let their customer service team know and they will send you something that they will love for free. So we've got a great deal so that you guys and your dog can start enjoying BarkBox together. For a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash the mom hour when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. Again, visit BarkBox.com slash the mom hour and subscribe to a six or 12 month plan and you'll get an extra month for free. Check it out. Okay, so we're down to the final two questions. It feels like we've had a countdown now. There are only two remaining <laughs> and then you have to wait a quarter before we do this again. Um, but this question comes from Victoria via email. Victoria says, hi, Megan and Sarah. I have four month old twins and listening to your show keeps me sane and makes me laugh. We love that. Thank you for what you do. I'm currently jumping into nap training and would love if you could talk about how you ladies have handled naps over the years. Um, I think we need to point out that neither one of us had twins. No. So probably we, like anything we say could just be utter junk. 
in it, your world, it Victoria. It could be, but I, what I really want is for our twin, our experienced twin moms out there, including Kelsey on our team. We have a team member who has five-year-old twins. Um, if you guys want to call in or write in your specific twin infant nap advice, I would love it. And I will find Me a way too. to get it to Victoria because we're not going to talk about twin nap training. She just happens to have twins. And what I know of twin parenting is the stakes are that much higher for getting everybody on a good sleep routine for the sanity of everyone. So some of the tips are similar, just the importance seems more uh, with twins because if you're ever going to get a break, you got to get a nap. Well, schedule. it takes like twice as long and it's twice as important. Right. Yeah. For your own, <laughs> so, for your no own big sanity. Deal. Yeah. No but big then deal. <laughs> what I love is to see twin moms who are, who've figured it out, cracked the code. And then I feel like it's like a superpower. Like they can put yeah. two awake one-year-olds in the same room and they'll sleep all night. And I'm like, what? How do you do that? <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this because, um, you know, you guys know I have a really bad memory for some things. Like I can't remember the plot of the book that I literally just finished, but I have weirdly a good memory for milestones and, um, baby timelines. And because my sister's having her babies now, we've talked a lot about like, when did they go from two naps to one? And how did I do that? So yeah. I'm going to give you my three minute, like how naps worked with my babies from, you know, for the first, like year and a half, two years. And Megan, you can just sit back because I'm hundred percent sure you did not do this. Um, so for <laughs> the, so well, yes. So for the first six months, I wouldn't say I tried much of anything. They n mostly napped on me. I was either wearing them or if they fell asleep in the car seat, then I, you know, they could sleep anywhere, basically swing car seat. My babies naturally were all catnappers. Meaning if I tried to do the proper thing to lay them down for a proper nap, I never got more than 35, 40 minutes. And that was good. If anything, it was half that. And that became really frustrating early on. So I just took the approach of kind of letting their daytime schedule. What I paid attention to was how long they'd been awake in between naps. That always felt easier for me. Like I knew, you know, a really little tiny infant can only be awake for like minutes and then maybe an hour and then it's an hour and a half. And that in between naps, that was kind of what I kept my eye on rather than a schedule. It was like, okay, this baby is no good after he's been awake for two hours. It's time for another reset. Somewhere around six months, I started to try to nap them in their crib, like at least once a day and usually the morning nap. And it felt like finally around six months that there was some predictability about around that. Um, but really from six to 12 months, they were still on, they, they had, they still had multiple naps because they were never long nappers. They weren't giving me two hours. So therefore it happened over and over throughout the day. I do remember like nine, 10 months being where we'd have two, like a morning nap, an afternoon nap. And then sometimes like that, I'm going to pop you in the ergo while I make dinner and hope that mm. you give me like 20 minutes so that then we can get to a real bedtime. Cause I don't want to put you to bed at five 30. That was always the right. thing was like, we're not going to make it till bedtime on the two naps you gave me. So let's go in the car. So I do remember a distinct phase of like, okay, we're down to two naps plus a, I don't know what you call it, like a little, like a, a bonus. And if we get that little- Like a cat nap. Yeah. And if we <laughs> yeah. get that cat nap, then it felt like bedtime could be at a, like a real bedtime. And then the night times were getting easier, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I do remember, I remember very well going from two naps to one because I felt like once my babies were on two naps a day, which really was like probably nine or 10 months old, life was golden for a long time. It was predictable. Mm -hmm. It was, mine were always early risers. So their naps would be like maybe like eight 30 or nine, they'd go down again to like 
10 or 10.30 and then again at like 1 to 2.30 and then they'd make it till bedtime and that was my life for a long time. It felt like that was finally a stretch and then going from two naps to one is kind of comically- It's the pit. It's kind of comically <laughs> painful. It is- yeah. The worst. And mine seemed to need longer to get there. I think they were like 15, 16 months um, before they could do one nap. And I just remember, please stay awake. Like, please don't fall asleep in the car for five minutes at 10 a.m. Because then all of a sudden that's your morning nap. And the right. whatever the afternoon one is now shot or it's going to happen later. So I just remember that. And then I kept one napping, one napping kids until they were they were all like three and a half to four. They kept that, you know, 1230, one o'clock nap. Whoa. Did I, did, did I do all naps from zero to age three? I think you did. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, your kids would have still been napping. Like your older would have still been napping when the baby came, right? A little uh -huh. bit. Oh yeah. No, yeah. I definitely had, I never had three napping at once because Allegra was almost five when Violet was born. I, right. I had two overlapping nappers twice. And I remember it took me a full year to line up where Allegra's afternoon nap matched up with Reed's second of two naps. But that took a year of two babies. And then by the time you get there, it's like practically right. over. Yes. Um, what yeah. did, now, did you put the baby down first or the slightly older baby? I think. You remember? Hmm. So when I had like a three and a one-year-old or a two and a six-month-old, I feel like I'd probably put the older one down first. Mm -hmm. but I don't remember. It, it might've depended on the season or who was most tired, like who really needed a nap. The other thing I'm thinking about from my, from like the whole, like when one starts to give up that afternoon yeah. or the morning nap, you know, when they go down to one nap is like, how would that look with twins? Yeah. Because then you're just used to them doing the same thing. And then suddenly one has to do something completely different, yeah. but they're still the same age. Like that, I feel like that would be really challenging. So I'd be would, curious to hear would from be twin very, mamas about that. Very difficult. <laughs> and it's funny, I was going to say, even though I didn't go through like the first year rigmarole that you were talking about, um, like I was not obviously as scientific about it, but my kids in their toddler, you know, in their, in their second year still settled into basically exactly what you described, mm -hmm. only they weren't early risers. So it was more like an hour, it was like shifted forward two hours. Right. So would their yeah. not afternoon not be at like two, two thirty, like yeah. something like that. Yeah. I used to get a lot of writing done in the <laughs> afternoons. I remember sitting, um, and sometimes I would have like, because I'd have kids of multiple ages. Sometimes I'd have one snuggled up next to me while the other one was sleeping in another room. And I would just write and write and write. And because it was like the only concentrated time I knew I could get because the smaller of the two, whoever the two little ones at the time were, um, would nap twice, but the older would only nap once. So mm -hmm. I had to make like the absolute most of those yeah. two hours and man, I could be productive. Yes. When you know that's all you're going to get. Yep. You use it. That was the stage of life I was in when you hired me. That was like, that's right. I was getting two jobs done in like a daily nap somehow. Um, I also have a comment about, cause I, I know twin moms especially uh, focus on, you know, getting babies on a schedule and often sleeping as long as possible at night so that hello, you can get some rest. Um, and I did do some like sleep training with my babies, but I always looked at naps differently, especially if we were focusing on nighttime sleep. So if I was like, if I was doing some, you know, method or another to get my babies to sleep longer or to require me less at night, I often did not do that approach at all during the day. And, and I know there's probably different schools of thought on this, but my thought was I needed all the daytime flexibility, um, meaning like, let's just nap in the ergo, let's nap in the Moby right. wrap, let's nap in the car, because both of us needed kind of a reset if we were working on some <clears throat> good sleep habits at night. So um, I <laughs> yeah. think I was much more loosey-goosey in that first 
six to nine months about the daytime sleep, but that was where I, you know, was probably trying some method or another at night and they looked very different. So I think if you're, if you're feeling pressure to do the same thing for daytime sleep as you do for nighttime, I don't think you really have to. I mean, maybe I'm sure there are schools of thought that would disagree with that, but it felt different. Just like, um, we, when we've talked about potty training, daytime potty training and nighttime potty training are two very different things. I think daytime sleep and nighttime sleep are different. And kids know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's like, the, it happens at a different time. The context is different. If yeah. the, the light is different, mm-hmm. like they, even little ones can sense that these are two different kinds of sleep situations. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that was a trip down memory lane and I'm sure was. very glad that my day is no longer determined by um, nap schedules <laughs> <By> anymore. Nap. <laughs> Although sometimes I wish, I do wish my kids would take naps even now. Like we all just take a nap. That yeah. sounds great to me. <laughs> All right. Um, Okay. So we have come to our last question and it's kind of a big one. It comes from Michelle and she called it in um, not too long ago. So we will listen to that now. Hi, Megan and Sarah. This is Michelle. I'm a longtime listener. I love your show and your insight. I have kind of a serious foreboding question, I guess. Um, There was another mass shooting today and I was wondering how you talk to your kids of various ages about these. Um, I know there's obviously a very wide range of different parenting approaches and how much or how uh, little you choose to share with your child. From my experience, I am a former first and second grade teacher. So I'm coming at it from the lens of what I've had to explain to my first graders about a lockdown drill. What is the purpose of a lockdown drill? Why are we hiding in the corner? Why do we have to be quiet? things like that. Um, but since you have such a range of ages between all eight of your kids, I was curious how you approach this at the different ages. Any insight or direction on how to approach this topic is appreciated. Okay, Michelle, thank you for the question. This is a biggie and it's definitely something that's been on my mind lately. Um, it's funny, like my oldest is almost 22 and he, Jacob was a toddler when Columbine happened. And then he was four and Isaac was two on 9-11. So I feel like I've been dealing with some big, horrible story in the news, like every two years, maybe a little more frequently since my kids were tiny. Mm -hmm. And so I've become like, in a way, it's become this thing that's just kind of constantly in the back of my head, but yet never gets easier. Like mm-hmm. you would think with time, it would just be, I never quite know how to deal. Like a new one will happen and I'll think, man, I wish I would have gotten that together the last time so mm-hmm. that this time I would know exactly what to say. Um, but I just don't know that it's possible because A, all your children are different. If you have more than one, the way they react to news is different. The input they get from their friends is probably different. The way their school might talk about it is different. So I guess I'll just, talk about what I do knowing that like this isn't something that I think has been researched for many 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 decades and they can say this is the one absolute right way to talk to your kids about hard news like there's this approach the approach changes as our reality changes um and your reality might be different from mine so Mm -hmm. I try to walk that line between like knowing that my kids are aware of what's going on in the world already where I'm not trying to shelter them but I want our home to feel like a safe place where we can feel at ease. Mm -hmm. And it might literally be the only place where they feel like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it's my job to inform them about all the nitty gritty of what happened or really even go into a lot of detail about it Mm -hmm. unless they're asking. Um, I do ask them questions because I want to make sure they're not getting misinformation through friends or whatever. Like, so I'll ask them questions 
but I don't volunteer information that's not been asked for. And I don't know if that's the right or wrong approach, but mm-hmm. I'm not like, I don't bring forward information that one of my kids didn't look at me and ask for, mm-hmm. unless maybe it's one of my adult children. And it's more like, let's have a conversation about how the world is right now, mm-hmm. which feels very different to me than when I'm talking to my 10 year old. I'm going to jump in there just because I agree and I have taken the same approach. So I guess I'm just, I'm just validating. And the only time I can think of recently where it wasn't led by the kids questions or what they had heard was when there was um, a tragedy involving a very local family. And um, it, it brought up some things that I realized I needed to talk to my oldest about, and I did do it pre preemptively, but that, that came to mind as the only time. And the reason was I knew that there was going to be quite a bit of local discussion. And I wanted to make sure that the facts were represented. Um, But when it comes to, wider news stories, I have taken the same approach as you. And I didn't mean to cut you off there, but just like same. Yeah. And I also think like we also had something happen. Um, one of my kids' principals, school's principal died a few years ago and it was terribly tragic and what happened. And there was a lot like the official story was never really told. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of gossip and he was someone who was close to our family. And so I felt like they needed to know because I also didn't want them speculating with their friends. It's yeah. a very personal thing and, and that kind of thing. But when it's I guess the other thing I feel like about something like a school shooting or some kind of violent something that my kids don't have any control over is they're already doing everything they can Mm -hmm. to keep themselves safe. It's not like something like talking to them about not taking candy from strangers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's they're They probably are doing lockdown drills in their school. Our school handles it pretty well, I think, but it's definitely the teachers understand how to make them safe in a situation like this where as safe as possible in a situation like this, there's already like a, there's like a structure around it. There's already a plan in place. And what can I add to that besides more fear if Mm -hmm. I keep bringing it up? Like there's nothing I can tell them. It's just, I don't know. Like, it's kind of like, what, um, is there a reason for me to talk about this that they don't want to? And if there's not, then I don't. Yeah. And I don't, again, I don't know if that's the right approach or not. I don't think either of us know. Um, but I, I'm reminded of our conversation last week where we talked about using the plainest language possible. If a kid does have a question or if there's been a news event that's so widely talked about that that it needs to be spoken, um, I have said things like a lot of people died in a really tragic event today and I'm feeling really sad about it and kept mm. it that simple. Um, I think, again, I think we mentioned this last week, but the desire or uh, what we bring to a situation, our fears every other time this has happened and what we feel triggered by is different than our kids. So I think if we can simplify to the the most plain spoken facts, even if those are hard and sad, um, then I think it gives kids rooms to ask the questions that they really have. And the questions they have might be different than what you thought they were going to ask questions about. Um, I did an interview a million years ago. I think it was like our our second ever voices with a woman named Jennifer Freed about talking to kids about tragic events. And uh, the couple of things that still stick with me, one was that she talked a lot about your own self-care. She talked a lot about managing Mm. our own intake of this kind of news. Um, And I was almost surprised. I thought she was going to tell me how to talk to kids about it. Um, But she was very clear that the way and the quantity in which we take in news media is really something to think about if we're going to be present and available to our kids. So I will just say that because that's what she said. But if you are feeling like you're um, 
you know, reading so much that it's causing you anxiety, um, that you can feel like you can take a step back from that. And it doesn't mean that you're checking out or that you're, you know, don't care, but you don't have to consume the 24 hour news media cycle. And I would say, at least when my kids were really little, I did not want them exposed to that at all. I never had the yeah. radio. I didn't, I bummed me out. Cause sometimes I wanted to be listening to NPR, or have CNN on or something. And I just didn't after they were like, honestly, like two years old because they were listening to everything. And so I, that I sheltered them in that way, but then I also don't want to shelter them when it comes to the real questions and the real things that happen. But that constant media commentary in the background is, I think it's unhealthy for most of us, let alone for our kids. So you're getting those, like those, um, what is the stress hormone? Cortisol. Cortisol. Yeah. You're just getting constant cortisol spikes. Yeah. Because all you're hearing is, first of all, bad news, people arguing about bad news. Yeah. Even just like the sounds of the voices Mm -hmm. on the TV can stress me out, Mm -hmm. the way they talk about the bad news. So yes, I I am very much the same. I like, I choose how and where I'm going to consume it. And it's in, it's like need to know basis. Yeah. In and out. Yeah. And, and the other thing she said was what you started this whole conversation with. And I remember being surprised that she really said that for the most part, we can, we can follow our kids lead and answer their questions. It's not, I'm sure there's exceptions to this. So don't take this as an absolute, but in most cases, it's not our job to sit everybody down and say, okay, children, Today right. in El Paso, this happened. And I actually thought it, I thought that, that maybe that was the right thing to do, depending on the age of the kid. And she really advocated for letting the kids, you know, saying, what did you hear? What questions do you have? How are you feeling? Um, and then I remember we also talked about whenever possible, if, if kids are feeling really upset or traumatized by something, taking any action that you can take, whether it's writing a letter together, drawing a picture for someone who's sad, getting and getting the kids and, and yourself to put that into something actionable um, is so helpful rather than just internalize the, you know, the horror. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah. No, I like that. Well, doing something always makes you feel better. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, one final thought on this lockdown drill thing, because Michelle comes at this from uh, her perspective as a teacher. And we've had a lot of listeners maybe not a lot, more than once we've had listeners write to us with questions about, oh my gosh, my kid's in school now and they're doing lockdown drills. And this is so heartbreaking. And this, I can't believe this is a thing. And I agree that that it's just really terrible to think about first graders practicing these things. But I will also say that I have been in classrooms and I've been part of elementary school drills and the drill itself does not feel as terrifying as what we know it's about. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want to diminish what we're talking about. Of course, that's terrifying. That's a whole separate issue. But I've been a part of some of these drills and the teachers are very professional. They're very calm. The schools have their protocol. And for the most part, kids were not, I think what I worried about is kids being traumatized. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, but the kids, they're not given a lot of information about the scenario that they're practicing for. And I look back and I think of earthquake drills that we did. We did fire drills. And before us, they used to do nuclear bomb drills. You know, I remember my old high school or elementary school still had the the signs on the walls for like fallout shelter Mm, in the basement. And I remember thinking like, wow, that must've been so scary. And asking my mom and she's like, well, no, they just, I mean, all schools had it. It was right. kind of like, yeah. And I'm not saying we should ever get to a point where we're blasé about no, any of this stuff No, I, I don't think either you or I are blasé about 
the fact that we have to have these is upsetting. But the the experience for the kids that I have seen has not been a one of panic for the most part. It's it's another drill. And when I've asked my kids about it, like, oh, I heard you had a lockdown drill. How'd that go? They're kind of like, meh. I mean, yeah. it's it doesn't seem to stress them out. And yeah. I think that was my point of saying, you know, what more can I add to that mm-hmm. at home? They've already know what happened. They've already had the drill. The school's already doing everything they can to keep them safe. Like, there's nothing more that me... Uh, perseverating on this topic is going to bring to it. Yeah. Besides anxiety for both of us. I agree. And this was like, we just answered this for ages like four to 21. So I I feel like it should go without saying that each, each age comes with slightly more information and probably more interesting and thoughtful questions from the kids. And you're never done. You don't, you never, you never have one conversation about, mass violence and then you're done you're having it over and over again over forever okay (laughs) well (laughs) no but in all seriousness michelle i'm i'm really glad that you sent in that question and this show is meant to be really fun and light and encouraging but the world is not always fun and light and encouraging so yes we we try to take these sensitively and thoughtfully and um yeah so thank you, Michelle. And thank you, everybody, who sent in questions today. This was a fun one. Okay, so before we leave you guys today, we are back with our cue it up segment after kind of taking the summer off. And this segment is where we like to leave you with a recommendation for something else to listen to when our show wraps up. And sometimes it's one of our own episodes from the archives. And other times, like today, it's a podcast that's put out by a friend or colleague of ours in the industry. And so that's what we're doing today. Yeah, today we want to give a shout out to a podcast called Real Women, Real Stories from OneToughBee.com. Uh, is literally One Tough Bee. <laughs> I'm not being coy. It's hosted by our friend Kristen Chase, whose voice you would recognize if you're a fan of Spawned with Kristen and Liz. But on this show, Kristen tells the stories of real women inspiring others through tough situations with amazing perseverance. Yeah, so stick around and you'll hear a little preview of season two of Real Women, Real Stories, which launches in early September of this year, 2019. Again, it's Real Women, Real Stories. And if you're looking for some encouragement and inspiration today, you should definitely check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And Megan, that's it for our show today. We'll be back with you guys soon. Talk to you then. Hi, listeners. This is Kristen Chase, the host of Real Women, Real Stories. For this week's season two teaser you'll hear from Virgie, a body positivity author and speaker who decided she had enough of fat shaming. I was learning that there was something very wrong with my body because I was fat. And because I was a girl who was fat, I was also violating a beauty standard. So I, I, you know, at about five years old, which is you know, unfortunately, the average age that children learn this in the United States, I was introduced to this concept. Something's wrong with you. Your body is ugly. Your body is doing something wrong. And you need to do anything in your power to fix it. And for as long as it takes you to fix it, that is become a thin person, you are going to be emotionally tortured incessantly. At the end of the day, For a lot of people, when they come and tell me that they want to lose weight, they often mean, I want to be happy, I want to be respected, I want to be able to find clothes I like, I want to be treated seriously as a romantic partner. And at the end of the day, you don't need to be thin to get those things. Want more? Be sure you're a subscriber and then tune in September 5th when we launch our next season of Real Women, Real Stories. We're so glad you're here. 